Welcome to church. It's great to see uh, all of your faces. So good to have you with us. I am both um, announcer and preacher today. Our announcement person is sick, so I've got uh, double duty for all of you. Uh, if you're new, welcome to Trinity. We are really glad to have you with us. I hope you grabbed one of the flyers uh, on your way in. This is the part of the service where I tell you about some things that are up and coming for us here in the life of the church outside of Sundays before we spend some time together uh, in the Bible. And I just want to say this about uh, Health Day, which is happening today. We did, in fact, uh, surpass our goal of 600 health kits we put together. So it's amazing. Over 700 of those have come in um, already so far. And just as a reminder to say it, our brothers and sisters will be out um, there on the streets, rain or shine, uh, today to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so um, I am particularly proud of the church in moments like this and days like this. So thank you to all of you who are going to be out there serving alongside Lazarus. We love them and are so thankful for what they do. And then two announcements I want to make um, for you. Today, we are going to have a connecting dinner for 30s and 40s. So if you are in your 30s and 40s and you would like to meet some people from the church, maybe you're just now getting plugged in or you've been here a long time and still have not yet um, plugged in, found your people, we are going to meet together today, rain or shine. And so as someone who is uh, decidedly in her 30s uh, to 40s, um, I hope that we can make a good showing and um, be there for each other. So if you would like to do that, you'll just need to register, let them know that you're coming and they've Got tents set up in the backyard. It'll be a great time. All the information you need um, is there. And then uh, secondly, I want to let you know about something happening next weekend on Saturday. On the 25th, our friends over at One Race are going to be putting on a 5K run. It's called the Jesus and Justice uh, event. They're going to be doing that on uh, next Saturday. You all may remember One Race or some of you anyway. We partnered with them last summer. Join them for their march through Atlanta. Thousands of folks came out and marched uh, through the streets of Atlanta uh, for racial reconciliation in the church. They're doing incredible things uh, there. Uh, we love them. All of the proceeds from this event go to support six really incredible organizations that are working towards uh, restoration, youth mentorship, and other really incredible things, all of which you can read about on their site. But if you're available and you like to run or if you really don't love to run and you'd still like to go, you should. They're going to have um, what I hear promises to be a pretty epic worship experience uh, in the park following this race. So we love them. They're good guys. And then lastly, I want to say this. Um, those of you who've been there for the la been here at Trinity for the last uh, few weeks um, have heard us uh, say before that our lead pastor, Chris, is taking some extended uh, time away for rest and recovery. He's been out the last uh, few weeks doing the really good work of restoration and getting um, some of the space that he needs. And we are so glad to be able to give him that space. And rather than encourage him to be back in four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or any amount of weeks, we've been encouraging him to take the space that he needs to take. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to extend his time out for the next several weeks, probably through the fall. So for the next several weeks, um, he'll be continuing to do what he's been doing, which is getting rest, renewal, um, spending time with really good people around him. And y'all, it feels really good to be able to, um, in this moment, have an opportunity as a church to bless someone who has spent the last 20 years really faithfully um, blessing all of us. And so as a staff, as a team, with our bishop, we all just have been saying over and over, we're good, you, you rest. And it feels really good to be able to say that. Um, we're good. We're going to keep being the church and doing what the church has always done. And we can be who we are today because really good and faithful people have gone before us and been good and faithful. Amen? Amen. So we're going to read 
Today is the start of our study through Galatians. We're going to spend the next six weeks um, in this really, I think, brilliant and powerful letter written by our brother Paul. We'll talk a little bit more about a why here in a moment. But if you have um, registered for that study in your neighborhood group or in a study group or on your own, we're thrilled. There are hundreds of us going through it for the next few weeks. There are journals out in the atrium. For those of you who've registered to do the study, if you want to keep notes, um, or even if you're just here and you want to take one, please do. Uh, they're out in the atrium. That way all of your Galatian stuff will be in one place. We're going to read these first 12 verses and then pray. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant, a slave of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then I want to read to you this linchpin verse in chapter 4 that we'll come back to time and time again throughout the letter. Chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I were present with you now and could change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, this is, Lord, your word, your church, your time. All things, Lord, are for you, through you, and by you. This letter, Lord, that we get to hold in our hands has made it across time and place to be here with us. And you are, Lord, every bit the same God you were then today. You, Jesus, are the same. Your spirit is the same. And the issues, Lord, that we may be facing, the questions we may be asking, Jesus, they are different, no doubt, than what our brothers and sisters in Galatia were experiencing. And yet, so much of the tension and the struggle is the same, as you well know. So will you help us, Holy Spirit, in the same way you were with them, we ask you to be now with us. Help us, Lord, to learn and know the gospel, what does it mean, Jesus, for you to be formed in us? May it be so, Lord. 
Bring us your peace, God, now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at uh, three different things in our time together. Those of you who may be visiting Trinity for the first time, uh, haven't been here on a Sunday before, this time together will be a bit different from how we've done sermons in the past. It will feel a little bit more like a hybrid between a study and a sermon. We oftentimes don't spend as much time as we will today doing some of the like background and contextual work. But it matters that we kind of know where we are uh, in the world and what's going on and why we're looking together at this particular letter. So uh, three things we're going to put on the slide so that just that you can track where we're going. The first is, first question we'll be looking at is uh, why Galatians? Why this letter now for us? Uh, Secondly, what's the issue? What's the letter about? And then thirdly, we're going to look at the text and spend time on three little words, Paul, an apostle. So that's where we're headed. Uh, Why Galatians? It's a great question. I'm not sure that um, even a few weeks ago I could have given a terribly concise uh, answer to the question. Uh, We had months ago been talking about together as a team the desire to want to spend some time and maybe do a study again, and probably in one of Paul's letters. Every fall, we do a study on a book of the Bible or the Bible itself. We've done Revelation. We've done Exodus. And so we were going to do a study, and probably in one of Paul's letters, even though I didn't know which one. And that's because it felt like, in light of the past year that we've had, all the uncertainty, all the change, all the struggle in so many ways, that it might be really timely and fitting to go back into the New Testament and to be reminded of the fact that Struggle has always been a part of our story as the church. There's not some golden age in which we did not struggle or even have some of these very same struggles. The struggle for faith, the struggle for unity, the struggle for hope. Some of those things are just quintessentially Christian. They've always been a part of the story. And so I wanted to spend some time uh, dealing with that fact uh, together, looking at it. And then I heard that um, N.T. Wright had published a commentary, a new commentary had come out on Galatians. I thought, well, that settles it. It's a word from God. If N.T. Wright says it's Galatians, it's Galatians. And then, as if further affirmation might be needed, I heard that Beth Moore had also published a study on Galatians. And I thought, well, if Aunt Beth And the good Bishop Tom Wright are all in Galatians right now. It must be God. There's a word from the Lord. And I'm curious, right? I mean, it begs a question. Why would they similarly be prompted to look at this particular letter? And then I was reminded of a story that I remember reading by Eugene Peterson in his book, uh, Eat This Book. If you've never read it, it's really fantastic. It's about the Bible. But he tells this story in that book about something that happened in his church back in the 80s. Um, There was... Uh, an incident that he doesn't give the specifics, some kind of like economic crisis or downturn happened in his city. And as a result, uh, there were political tensions. People became sort of instantly more polarized. Rhetoric was heightened, intense. You could sort of feel the anxiety. It was palpable. People who had um, never owned guns or probably held guns rushed out to buy them in his city. There were race riots. Sounds so familiar. Nothing new under the sun. Humans are painfully predictable. 
in how we respond to being squeezed or afraid. Listen to what he writes about this particular time. He says, paranoia infected the small talk I would overhear on street corners and in barber shops. To my dismay, all of this seeped into my congregation without encountering any resistance. How could we, the church, so unthinkingly absorb the world's fearful anxiety and hateful distrust and so easily? Overnight, it seemed, we had turned our homes into armed camps. We were living defensively, guardedly, timidly, and we were Christians. And he goes on to write about how he was trying to grapple with this moment and what he experienced happening not only in his community, but how it was also happening within his church and how he struggled to like make sense of, gosh, it looks exactly almost the same outside and in. And shouldn't that be different? And so he decided to take his whole church through a study. And guess what that study was? Galatians. And you think, I'm bad. He also made them translate it into Greek. So not only did they spend weeks studying this letter, they translated it word by word in the Greek language. Because Paul thought there's something in this letter that matches a moment like this. And in his words, I want to get it in our bones. I want the same hope that the Galatians experienced, the same renewal and revival and restoration that they experienced as a result of the Holy Spirit to be ours. And so they painstakingly translated this letter, got the whole letter finished, and then he wasn't done. And he went on to translate the whole Bible, and thus the message was born. Out of a moment of pain and turmoil and grief in his own heart and spirit and in the church, sometimes real good stuff comes out of the struggle, you know? A gift for the whole church. So why, why Galatians? That doesn't, just because N.T. Wright says so and Beth Moore says so and Eugene Peterson says so. Why? Because Paul's writing a letter to Christians who were under threat of losing the heart, the power of their faith due to fear, social pressures, and politics. The church was under threat of losing the heart and the power of its faith due to fear and social pressures and politics. Specifically, the Galatians were being offered a version of Christian faith that provided for their need for control. Because when things get scary, what's our instinct? So this version of Christian faith provided for their need for control while simultaneously minimizing the role of the Holy Spirit and the significance of the cross. So more control, less spirit, less cross. And for Paul, what that equated was like, literally, you could be Christian without Jesus. You could be Christian and look almost just like everybody else. And for Paul, if you're wondering why he's so perplexed about you, 
and me. It's because he realized that's not good news. That's no news at all. That's just more of the same. When what the world needs, particularly in moments of struggle and strife, is good news, something to hope in and for. And he believed, without reservation and emphatically, that the church had that gift to give to the world in a moment like the one they were in. There were temptations that, while on the surface, y'all, were very different from ours. There's a lot of time and space that separates us from first century Christians in Galatia. But beneath the surface, these temptations are, the, are similar, if not the same, that threaten to deform our faith. Paul says in chapter 4, the sort of centerpiece of the letter, I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There is, in other words, a particular shape, just like a pregnant woman has a recognizable and particular shape. Christians ought to have a recognizable and particular shape. The church, in moments of strife and struggle, ought to have a particular shape and form. And so the question is, what is that? What does it look like? What does it mean for us to have Christ formed in us? And what are the temptations that threaten to deform our faith and our shape? That's what Paul's addressing in the letter. So let's talk about the issue. What's the presenting issue? If someone asks you six weeks from now what Galatians is about, you're going to be able to tell them. You'll know. So help me, Lord. We'll know. Here's here's the presenting issue. Paul's writing this letter to Gentile Christians. That means these were Christians now who were formerly polytheistic or pagan in their faith. Um, First century Greco-Roman world, no one's an atheist. You're either a polytheist, meaning you worship the Pantheon and Caesar, or you just worship Caesar, and you don't really care about the gods, but you can't tell anybody, you know? Either way, you're doing all the stuff. You're polytheistic. So Gentiles were polytheistic. They were also ethnically not Jewish, culturally and ethnically not Jewish. That's anybody who's not a Jew, racially, ethically, culturally, is a Gentile. So these Gentiles living in this area of Galatia, now like modern-day Turkey-ish, have become Christian because Paul visited there sometime before he wrote this letter. We don't know how long before, but sometime before, unexpectedly. It was an unplanned visit. Paul was on one of his missionary journeys. He had a destination in mind, and all of a sudden he gets sick. He talks about this in chapter 4. And due to an unnamed illness, Paul ends up on a detour into Galatia. And as a result of that detour, a lot of people become Christian because Paul's a missionary. So here's what I just want to say as an aside. Maybe firstly, we remember when we are holding Galatians in our hand now 2,000 years later, all of us Gentile Christians, you know. Maybe the first thing to be reminded, unless you're Jewish, of course, in which case it's different. Either way, it matters for us. 2,000 years later, that maybe... We're here, this letter is certainly here, because of a detour. And maybe that ought to be a reminder to us that we ought not to despise all of our detours. That this year has, in so many respects, y'all felt like a detour, like a rerouting for so many of us, and 
innumerable ways. Very few of us are right now today where we thought we would be, doing what we thought we would be doing two years ago. So much has changed. The world looks different. And I wonder if in the same way that people saw Jesus as a result of Paul's detour, could we not also hope that as a result of our detour, people would see Jesus in ways that they might not otherwise see him or come to know him? Maybe it's not too much to hope for, at the very least. Maybe God's doing something through you in the moment you're in. Just because you are not where you thought you would be does not mean that you are not exactly where you should be. God is God with you right where you are. And even the detours, he makes good. So these Christians become Christian with Paul And then in Paul's absence, he goes on, does the rest of his journey. In his absence, Jewish Christian missionaries visit Galatia from Jerusalem. So these are people who are ethnically, culturally Jewish, who have become followers of Jesus. We don't yet have a Christianity and a Judaism that are separate. This is still too early on. Christianity, what will become Christianity, Christian faith is something, is a movement that's coming up from within Judaism. So these many, many Christians are Jews who are choosing to follow Jesus. So these Jewish Christian missionaries come to Galatia and they tell these early Christians, this church, we're so glad that you're with us. Um, In order for you to be fully in, for you to belong, to be grafted into this story, you need to become Jewish in two particular ways. We're gonna need to circumcise you because these people were not yet circumcised. Jews are circumcised. The others are not. Um, So that's not great news for you if you're a Gentile man, I guess. Secondly, you have to keep the law, Mosaic law. So these are people who have no background in Jewish faith, no no history of observing the law. They're now being asked, keep the law and get circumcised. And here's the reason that Paul comes undone a little bit with this is because what he hears them saying is this. In other words, we're gonna go back to doing what we were doing before Jesus came, before there was a Holy Spirit. Is that what you mean? We're just gonna go back to keeping faith the way we've always kept faith, as if he never came, died, and was resurrected, and the Holy Spirit never came. Through externals, through the flesh, which is humans, that's our default, that's our nature. It's like externals to to, uh, feature them. And that's what Paul says. So what makes a person belong is that they would belong through the flesh externally, or rather through the removal of flesh, if you know what I mean. Uh, That that's how you're grafted in. And if you don't have said flesh that gets removed, um, you get brought in by proxy to the flesh that gets removed. Are you following me? It's hard to talk about circumcision in church, you know. (laughs) In short, we have to become Jewish. Even though we can't, like, ethnically and culturally become that, we have to become it through our observance, which still is going to prioritize and privilege one group over another. As if this Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who came to all of us to create one new family of faith had never come. 
Because that spirit creates an equality between all God's people, something radically new. Paul believed that when Jesus died and was resurrected, that he stepped out of the tomb on Easter morning, that he was a new creation of first fruits. Not just because he was a resurrected person and could die no more, but because in him and through his spirit, God was going to do something for all people, make us into one family of faith, based not on externals, that had nothing to do with your ethnicity, your class, your sex, but that this Holy Spirit would come to all God's people in the same way, unifying us and making us one family. And so now Paul is saying, so we don't need that? We can just take that Holy Spirit out and go back to doing things the way that we've always done them? That's a tack-on gospel. That's Jesus as a tack-on to the same way we've always done things, and that is no gospel at all. It's anathema, Paul says, a perversion, a false gospel. So it raises then questions for me and for you. Is our way of keeping faith the shape that my faith takes in me, the form that it gives me, is it dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the cross of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's saying. Our shape and form in the world, the way that we live this out, will necessitate the Holy Spirit and will look like the cross. You can't just remove those two things. They're essential. So that's the issue for Paul. We can't have attack on Jesus and attack on gospel. I can't, we can't just do the same thing the way we've always done it. Now I want us to look at the text together. That's the issue. This is a gospel without a spirit, a gospel without a cross. It's no gospel at all, Paul says. Look at the text together. Three little words. Paul, an apostle. I, um, I usually get about an hour and a half every night, well, once a week for six weeks um, to do a class. And so, you know, I only get 20 minutes with you, so you get three words. Um, that's as far as I got before I ran out of time. Um, do the study videos if you want to. They're 15 minutes long. They're fairly short, but they'll give you more of the context for the rest of the chapter. But these three words, I think, are so important. Paul, an apostle, he writes. Paul was formerly who? Do we remember? Saul. Saul the Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for his faith, an expert in the law. This Saul has a radical, life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus, as a result of which he is utterly and forever changed. So when he starts to write this letter, he starts it, Paul, an apostle, not by human authority or by any human, but by Jesus alone, who was raised from the dead in order to rescue you from the present evil age. To the glory of God our Father, amen. That's what he says. That's the opening to his letter because he wants to make sure that everybody agrees. It's a doxology here at the letter to say a couple of things. One, Jesus has called me to, I am an apostle, not because any human or man made me so, but because Jesus himself, who was resurrected, made me so. 
And Jesus has been resurrected in order to rescue us from the present evil age. He wants you to like assent all those things. It's an interesting, doxa, or an interesting salutation, greeting. Not that he would say that he's an apostle, but that he would qualify it. That he would say, I'm an apostle. By the way, not because any man or human made me so. He's almost clearly defending something. The question is, why would he feel the need to defend how he became an apostle? Why would he say, no human made me one? Here, at least in part, is why. Paul wants his readers to know and you to know that the only way that he can and is an apostle is because Jesus died and was resurrected and then came to meet him. An apostle was a sent one, someone sent by the person Jesus to go and tell people about who he is, and then those people sent other people. Peter, James, and John were sent by Jesus before he died. What Paul is saying to you and to me is that I never knew Jesus before he died. I didn't have access to him that way. It was after his resurrection, by virtue of his Holy Spirit, that I became an apostle. It's the only way I could become an apostle, is if Jesus was resurrected and came to visit me. So everything Paul knows now, he wants you to know, he knows only because of the Holy Spirit. He didn't go and get discipled by Peter, James, and John. They didn't teach him everything he knows. He didn't receive his authority through men. And here's why this matters to him. Paul wants you to know that there are certain things that can come into existence only if Jesus has died and is resurrected, and he's a living example of that. There are certain things in this world that can only exist if Jesus has died and been raised and through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's not just true for Paul, it's true for me and for you and for the church. He also wants you to know that the spiritual authority that he has came straight through the Holy Spirit, not based on his ethnicity, not because he was male, not because he was wealthy or respected or had degrees. Those are all categories, criteria that matter to the world. The world equates those things with authority. But now, Paul says, because Jesus has done something radically new, the Holy Spirit is looking for one criteria to give spiritual authority to people. And what is it? Foreskins. <laughs> Thanks be to God for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No. It's not just people who have foreskins. It's not just people who don't have foreskins. It's not people who have white skin or black skin or rich skin or male skin. There's one criteria that matters for spiritual authority now that the gospel has come. What is it? Faith. Faith by grace alone. Jesus has died and is risen and therefore y'all all things have been made new. Paul could be a Pharisee without Jesus. He could not be an apostle without Jesus. Saul could be a Pharisee without Jesus. Saul could not be Paul without Jesus, without the gospel, without the Holy Spirit. And you need to know that's not just true for him. There is an equivalent for you. 
There is someone, something that you cannot be apart from Christ risen and the power of his Holy Spirit. And because he is risen and because of the Holy Spirit, there is no way in hell that you cannot be that thing. Amen? What is your equivalent of Paul, an apostle? Who, in other words, who, when Jesus looks at you, who does he see that the world cannot see? And a Christian apostle, this man's a Pharisee who persecutes, literally rounds up and tog ties Christians. He's not an apostle, according to Jesus he was, is and will ever be. Do you have, you, you have an equivalent. It's not your job. It's a gift given by grace alone, by a spirit who does not care where you came from or the color of your skin or your tradition or how much you know. By faith alone, by grace alone, because Jesus lives. You have authority given to you by virtue of the Holy Spirit to do something that the world desperately needs you to do. In order for us to have the shape, the form in this world that we are meant to have, to form it according to the gospel. That's the great hope of the world. That's good news. What's your equivalent? Anna, a missionary. Ryan, an evangelist. Trinity, a unified and reconciled church. Ashley, a pastor. My whole life, a pastor to me was a man in a suit. And I will tell you, I am only Jesus can know. I could get up and say things apart from the gospel. I could be a communicator, make lots of money, I'm sure, giving motivational speeches apart from the gospel. But Ashley, a pastor, does not exist apart from Christ risen. He makes all things new, y'all. All things new. So what is it for you? What is it for us that Christ might be formed in us in a way that brings good news to the world around us? Y'all, that's hope. It's a promise. Paul is worked up, I'm not going to lie, gets heavy in this letter because it's all on the line for him. Not because he's angry because somebody's going to get it wrong. He does not want you to be deprived of the hope that you have that Jesus died and defeated death to give you. So like a woman whose baby grows within her, you are invited over, the, I think, the next few weeks, this season of your life, to ask, Lord Jesus, what would you like to form in me? What do you see when you see me? According to your gospel, who do you see? And in the same way, 
that a pregnant woman does not work for or try to earn or fix what God does in her. You don't have to earn, work for, or try to fix what God's going to do in you. You do have to make space for it and be open. So that's what we're going to do together for the next few weeks. Make space for whatever God wants to do in me and us. And be open. Ask him that we might be formed into the likeness of Jesus for the sake of Atlanta. Amen. Because he lives. All things are possible because he lives. For you. For us. Let's stand together if we can.